Amen. Well, good morning and uh, welcome again to GBC. My name is Daniel Ernest, if I don't know you, and I'm, I'm the executive pastor here. It's a pleasure to get to open up God's Word with you on this Sunday. Merry Christmas, by the way. Uh, we're going to continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians by being in chapter 15, uh, specifically verses 20 through 34. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, our text today, what I'm going to be preaching to you is sort of smack dab in the middle of Paul addressing what is a, a, a theological issue in the Corinthian church. And it's an issue, an error that they're making uh, concerning the resurrection. And so to kind of make sure we're all on the same page here to start, to give us a, a running start to ensure that you're, you're following Paul's logic, I want to start by, by backing up and sort of reminding you of what he's already said. And to start, what you need to know, like I just said, there were some folks in the Corinthian church who uh, were denying bodily resurrection, meaning they were denying that uh, believers, Christians, would be resurrected like Jesus was. And just to be clear, on one hand, they did affirm rightly, they believed that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead, but on the other hand, they, they wrongly believed that his resurrection was sort of like unique, like a one-time deal, that it didn't have anything to do with them or, or really anything to do with us. So, so last week, we looked at verses 12 through 19, and Paul pointed out that, that their refusal to believe in, their, their rejection of bodily resurrection, even though it wasn't what they intended, logically, Paul says in verse 13, if you deny the resurrection of believers, you deny the resurrection of Jesus. You're denying the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, you can't have one without the other. They, they go together. And even more, he says, if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, which again, Paul is saying that they're doing, if you do that, you're erasing the gospel. You don't have Christianity anymore. Without the resurrection, Paul says, the whole thing comes crashing down. All of it. Everything that we think, everything we believe, Paul says, it's, it's worthless. He says, Christians then are, are deserving of pity. So that's the argument so far. And if we got the negative last week in verses 12 through 19, what's missed if Jesus wasn't resurrected today, we're going to get the exact opposite. We'll get the, the positive implications, the positive consequences of the fact of his resurrections. And we're going to do that first by looking at verses 20 through 23. So take a look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Paul is writing. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Okay, right off the bat, in verse 20, Paul point blank issues his correction to the Corinthians. He says, Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. He says, there was a, a resurrection. And then Paul refers to Jesus' resurrection as firstfruits. Okay, firstfruits. This is 
an important word for us to understand. It's, it's an agricultural term. It's used a lot in the Old Testament. And, and just like it sounds, you guys are, are smart. The first fruits was the first installment, sort of the, the initial harvest of the annual crop. It was offered to God at the temple. And most importantly, this is why Paul uses this term, this word, it was seen, the first fruits were seen as representative. It was a representative sample of the greater whole. Okay, in other words, what that means is there was an assumption with the first fruits that more grain was coming. Okay, more harvest was expected. So in saying that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, what Paul is saying, he's implying that it, his resurrection, was representative of the harvest of resurrections that would inevitably follow. Okay, the idea is because Jesus has been raised, there's an assumption that we, Christians, will also be raised like him. I want you to think about it like a train, okay? All the carriages and the cars on a train are linked to the engine car. That's the one in the front, right? And wherever the engine goes, the train follows behind. It's the same thing here. Okay, we're linked to Jesus, and because he has been raised, we also will be raised. There's a certainty to it. It doesn't make it possible. It makes it inevitable. Do you see how this addresses the Corinthians' mistake, their error? Paul's saying, since Jesus rose from the dead, and since you affirm that, you also must affirm that we will too. As he went, as the engine goes, so we go, so the cars follow. And Paul explains further. Notice the parallel he draws in verses 21 through 22. Christians, Paul stand, say, stay, says, stand in relation to Jesus. Okay, Meaning, they are made alive, we are made alive, we're resurrected based on what Jesus did. And he says the same is true of the world, the human race. They die, death is brought in by one man's actions, Adam. If you're sort of theologically inclined, this is the concept of federalism or, or federal headship. Okay? If you're not theologically inclined, it's just a fancy way of speaking of representation. Okay, representation. And this idea, this concept is at the, at the core of Christianity. Okay? It's actually a lot like our, our government here in the United States. Okay, our senators, our congressmen that we vote for, they are our federal representatives. When they cast a vote in Washington, it's as if you and me are voting with them. They are voting, for better or worse, on our behalf. Their actions have far-reaching implications for everyone. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. He says, you're either represented by Adam in his failure to keep covenant with God and his disobedience and his sin, which results in death, or... You're represented by Jesus in his obedience to God and his covenant fidelity, which results in life. Either way, you're condemned or you're forgiven based in someone else's action, based on what someone else did. So that means when you stand before God in judgment, something everyone here will do, it's not really a question of what you did or didn't do. Okay, you, you, you can't stand before God and start listing out your, your qualifications, your, your credentials, like you're interviewing for a job. And listen, 
So many people in this room think that that's how it's going to go. But, but it's not. Instead, it, it's really going to be a question of who do you belong to? It, it's a question of, of status and standing. It's a question of are you an Adam or are you in Jesus? There is no third option. And before we move on, I want to make sure to ask, which is it in your case? That, that's, there's not a question in the world that's more important than that. If, if you're in Adam, there's only death waiting for you under the wrath of God, and not just physical death, eternal death, separation from God forever. But in the gospel, in Jesus who came to this world, who, to, who put on flesh and dwelled among us, the thing that we celebrate at this time of year, Christmas, the incarnation, in Jesus, who came to, to die a death we deserve, who, who came to, to resurrect in him, if we believe in him, there's glorious life, life here and resurrection life after. And really, Paul's main point in bringing this up is just that. The idea is, if we're represented by Jesus, if we're found in him, our resurrection is, like I said earlier, it's a certainty. It's inevitable. And then in, in verses 24 through 28, Paul is going to go beyond just sort of laying out the, the theology of this principle. And what he's going to do here is he's, he's going to paint a picture of what's going to happen in the end, what the world is going to look like at the end of all things. He's going to give us the order of things. And I'm going to warn you, this, this gets me fired up, so, so you're just going to have to just endure this. Look with me at verse 24. I'm going to read through 28. Paul writes, he says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, that's Jesus, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is ex accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Sometimes Paul makes things real complicated, okay? I don't want you to miss what happened here at the beginning. I think this is so amazing. Okay, just in case you missed it. Here's what Paul said in a nutshell. I'm going to add a little bit. After Jesus' resurrection, he inaugurates his reign as king. He rules over this earth. He does that now and he will continue to rule until he subdues all kingdoms, all other would-be authorities, all other would-be powers. He, he progressively puts his enemies under his feet. He establishes his kingdom. He, he builds his kingdom until every last enemy, the last of which is death itself, is subdued. It is destroyed. And then, in the end, he, he, he takes the kingdom and he does what with it? He, he presents it to the Father. He, he delivers it to God. And, and listen to this. What is the kingdom that he gives to the Father? Well, what's, what's Jesus presenting to God? It's people. It, it's you and, and me. 
It's the Corinthians. It's, it's all the redeemed people of God throughout history, past, present, and future. Now, other than that being amazing, other than that awakening in you, I, I hope it awakens, it produces a, a, a deep longing, a craving for that moment. A moment when Revelation 21 describes there will be no more sin, no more pain or, or suffering or sorrow, no more aching hearts or, or, or weary bodies or, or tired minds. A moment when there will be no more death. A moment when we will be with Jesus himself. Okay, other than these verses just encouraging you and, and, and bringing you hope and perspective, like if you've ever despaired over an enemy of God, Addiction, pornography, abortion, cancer, racism, Islam, as we just heard earlier, if you've ever despaired over any of these things, whatever the enemy is, these verses tell you, be assured, Jesus will put the enemy under his feet. He will put that enemy that you're thinking of under his feet. He will subdue it. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but it will happen. And that should make Christians... Even as we look at the world around us, kind of falling apart, that should make Christians, you and I, optimistic. We shouldn't be pessimistic as Christians. This should bring us optimism. But here's how these verses sort of are relevant to Paul's argument. And what he's saying here is, if there is no resurrection, if we don't rise from the dead, Paul says, then there are no subjects in the kingdom. That's the point. You see it? Resurrection is what makes this whole glorious finale a reality. Okay? Jesus must have something to present to the Father. And so that makes resurrection, our, our bodily resurrection, the resurrection of the saints of God, his church, that makes it a necessity. Uh, again, it makes it a certainty. So Paul has sort of gone out of his way to establish this point, but, but beyond just proving it to the Corinthians, now what he's going to do, beyond just sort of issuing a correction and telling them that they're wrong, what he's going to do in our last five verses here, our last six verses, he's going to give them some practical implications of this truth, what this looks like, what it means for us as Christians on the ground. There's going to be three specific areas where the certainty of resurrection is going to make all the difference. Look with me at verses 29 through 34. Paul says, starting in verse 29, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Okay, like I said, in these verses, what Paul is doing here is he's, he's listing out three practical consequences of believing in, living in the certainty of resurrection. The first comes in verse 29. And, and just so you know, there's like 
30 or 40 different interpretations of this verse. And real quickly, if you're, you look up at the screen, I'll, I'm going to kind of run through each one of them. I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't use visual illustrations, and I'm the efficient one, remember? <laughs> the reality here is we really don't know what, what Paul is intending here. We really don't know what he means, and that's why there's so many opinions. But what I want to do is I want to give you the negative first. I want to tell you what, what Paul is not meaning, and then I'll move to kind of telling you what I, what I think might be going on here. So the thing that Paul can't be saying is unfortunately the thing that appears on the surface to be the most obvious, okay? This is verse 29. It's, it's that somebody is being baptized on behalf of a dead person. Okay, that's what it seems like on, on the surface. And if you know any Mormons or you know anything about Mormonism, this is something they believe. This is uh, a doctrine that they hold. It's called vicarious baptism. But that can't be what Paul's teaching or commending here. For one, no one is saved by being baptized, even for themselves. Like we always stress this when we do baptisms at GBC. They're not salvific in any way. And also... We can't make decisions on behalf of other people. There's never an example in Scripture where that's the case. So it can't be that you can be baptized for behalf on behalf of someone else. So if that's not it, what's going on? Again, this is the interpretation I found most helpful. If I kept studying this, I might find one that I like better. There's 30 or 40 of them, like I said. But contextually, I think given what Paul has been arguing all along, which is if there is no resurrection of Christians, as the Corinthians believe, the consequence, the implication of this view is that Jesus himself must also not have been raised from the dead. Meaning, Jesus is among the dead. He's just another dead guy. And understanding that, what Paul is arguing, he seems to be saying is, What's the point of being baptized on behalf of, because of, on account of someone who's just dead? What what possible value would baptism have? What, What significance would it possess? If Jesus is just another rotting corpse, baptism is silly. It's empty. It's really stupid. It's devoid of meaning. Why do something? Why do anything in the name of a dead guy. But of course, as Paul has been establishing, Jesus is alive. And so what we do in baptism, this this sacrament, this ordinance, it's filled with substance and promise. It becomes a, a sign of our union with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. It's the gospel pictured and promised to everyone who believes. It's, it's a reminder. You've, you've gone from being an enemy of God to his child. You've gone from being in Adam to in Christ. You've passed from death to life. So Paul says here, the resurrection has implication for the sacrament of baptism. Next in verses 30 to 32, Paul talks about the impact of the resurrection on suffering. Okay, on suffering. Paul says, why should we stand in danger? Why should I suffer and and, and sacrifice every day? He says, and I I think this is figurative, he says, why should I fight wild beasts in Ephesus? He he goes on, he he quotes Dave Matthews, he says, if death is all that waits for us on the other side, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Tomorrow, there's only death. 
Why not live for ease and pleasure now? Again, he's, he's stating these questions rhetorically, right? The idea is it would be crazy for him or for anyone else to subject themselves to any hardship or persecution if Jesus isn't alive. Okay, the reality is if, if Jesus isn't resurrected, suffering is empty and meaningless. Christian service and sacrifice in Jesus' name, just like baptism, it's, it's futile. It's, it's stupid. It's a, it's a waste of time. But again, the point here is because Jesus has been raised, because he is alive, in suffering, our suffering, Christian service takes on a new significance. We're given a, a new perspective, a, a different perspective than the world, meaning any danger or hardship associated with living for Jesus, whatever it is, it's worth it. Paul says it, it, it's, it's worth it. And just to head something off here, because this is where my mind goes. Okay, if you know the life of Paul, you're familiar with the fact that he's beaten and imprisoned and, and, and shipwrecked and deprived and, and stoned. And if you know that, you can sort of allow that to sort of impact the way that you think about this, to discount this point. Like, you can think, I'll never have to do any of that. Like, I'm not trying to dodge sniper bullets to get to church today. Like, that's not my life. That's not the, the position I'm in. I'm not facing those things. The, the idea of suffering, of being persecuted, that's for the other Christians, the ones overseas, the, the ones on the front lines. There's, there's no way that I could experience suffering for Jesus. But I want you to actually think for a second. I want you to actually consider for your life what hardships might come your way as a result of being a believer in Jesus? What persecution, what suffering might you experience as you seek to live for God in the world, in Houston, Texas, right now? If you're a student in school, or you're just a normal working person, or you're about to spend some time with, with family at Christmas, it might be that the people in those spaces, it might be that they would make fun of you, leave you out, reject you, ridicule you, think that you're dumb or unsophisticated or irrational. Okay? It might mean that you have to go against your feelings, like what you think or feel is right. Obey God when it's really hard. You might have to suffer in that way. Resisting compromise when it seems pragmatic. It might be that you take a stand or speak out, do something that you really don't want to do. And hey, you can think to yourself, those things feel small in comparison to cyberbullets, but that's where you are. That's what persecution looks like. So as you, as you think about that, whatever it is that you could think of, whatever hardship you could possibly imagine, Paul is saying to you here, it's worth it. It's worth it. Whatever we face, no matter what it is, Paul says we can persevere. Why? Why? Because we can be certain that we will see Jesus resurrected and we ourselves will be resurrected one day. No matter what the consequence of our suffering, we can be assured that even death, the worst thing that we could face, even death is not the end. Tomorrow is not all there is. So the resurrection impacts the way we view sacraments, the way we experience suffering. The third and final, I channeled my inner Baptist here, it starts with an S. The resurrection impacts our sanctification. 
Okay, our sanctification. The resurrection impacts the way we grow in holiness, in developing a desire for obedience and in following God. Paul points out, and he does this, I think, interestingly, by using one of the Corinthians saying, he says in verse 33, bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. Said a different way, what he's saying here really is bad theology, for instance, associating with people who don't believe in the resurrection, this thinking, bad theology, it corrupts. It inevitably leads to immorality. Specifically, the idea here is if you take away the thought of life to come, if you think that this life is all there is, there's no incentive to pursue holiness. There's really no incentive to pursue obedience. And by the way, that's why it's so important to come together regularly and repeatedly for worship on Sunday. That's why it's important for you to live in community with other believers. We have to constantly be in environments where we are taught what is actually true, where we're exposed to God's word, where we're reminded, again, of what is true and good. Because to think that you don't need God's word, to think that you don't need to, to hear it taught, to, to study it with other people, that's nothing but arrogance. To, to act like we don't need each other, that we don't need to gather in our, our small groups here at GBC, to act like you don't need to be discipled or to be discipling other people. There's no other word. It's, it's arrogance. Without a commitment to those things, we'll end up no better than the Corinthians. And we'll be pulled in, in, in false ways by the world, by the false teaching of, of charlatans and heretics in the church. Like if we're not tethered to the truth repeatedly, consistently, that's where we end up. And that's obviously what's happening in Corinth, right? We've seen this throughout the letter. They were living in all sorts of debauchery that, that stemmed from, ultimately, bad thinking, bad theology. Paul says, this is shameful. He, he says, you should know better. Wake up. Stop living your old life. And, and he urges us, he urges them to live in the resurrection life that they've been given. He's saying, allow the resurrection to be the incentive to motivate holiness. Wes said this last week, but, but Liz, live as if there is lasting significance, purpose to what you do today, even to small things, because there is. This life is not all there is, and we should be marked as a people who are living as citizens of another country, another place, another kingdom, is that you? Is that me? Man, if it's not, you might need to, I might need to hear Paul's warning. He says, sober up and stop sinning. The resurrection demands we live differently. So Paul, in these verses, he's shown the resurrection has far-reaching implications. He said it affects the sacrament, the suffering, and sanctification. And backing up here to close, Paul has established Jesus is not dead. He lives and he reigns and he is returning. And if we're in him, not in Adam, we will live too forever. We will be resurrected just like him. But this truth is not just something for the future. Not just something that will happen later. There are so many practical applications of this doctrine, the resurrection. There's so many ways this impacts your life and my life right now. Like we just looked at, like Paul listed off, but 
But the question I want you to consider as you leave, in light of all of this, really the questions I have for myself, for you, for us as a church, are you, are we living in a way that's consistent with this truth? Does your belief in the climax of bodily resurrection, of living forever with God, as you think about your life, does it have any practical impact? Is it apparent to other people that you're living for a world that has not yet come? More specifically, aware of, as Paul says, the end. Are you the type of person that's marked by hope and confidence in the midst of uncertainty or unrest? Are you the type of person knowing the victory that Jesus has won? Are you driven, determined to fight your sin? On a different level, recognizing that we'll one day be presented by Jesus to God, are you the type of person, are we the type of people who are emboldened in our participation to reveal God's kingdom on the earth? Are you enthusiastically and faithfully making disciples, being a part of God, growing his kingdom? And listen, in, in all of these things and more, the great reality is that the confidence and hope and strength and boldness and determination and joy that's required to pull all of it off, all of those things that we need, they're given to us. It's guaranteed. It's provided for us in the certainty of resurrection. And the great thing is, in all of those things, we cannot fail because God does not fail. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your word and for the way uh, you reveal it to us. Lord, I'm thankful for this season, a time where we're able to reflect on the incarnation, the fact that your son was sent to this earth to draw near to us, uh, Lord. And I'm, I'm thankful that uh, his drawing near also entailed his living a life that we couldn't live, Lord, dying a death that we deserved. And like we talked about today, Lord, that, that entailed his resurrecting from the dead, Lord, that, that he would give us the hope, the possibility uh, of new life, of, of relationship with you. And Lord, I, I pray for myself, my friends here, I, I pray that that would be not just something we know in our heads, Lord, not just something that we sort of accept passively, but but Lord, I pray that that would be something that would impact the way, not just that we view the world, but as the way that we interact with the world, the people in our lives. Lord, I pray that that would give us motivation for holiness. Lord, I pray that that would give us motivation for ministry. Lord, we need your spirit to embolden us, Lord, to allow us to persevere in all of these things. I pray that he would, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.